1: Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Friday, January 13th, 2023. President Joe Biden welcomes the Japanese Prime Minister to the White House. On the agenda, China's growing power. The president saying the U.S. remains strongly committed to its alliance with Japan and praises Japan's increase in defense spending and new national security strategy. Coming up, we hear from the two leaders and talk with Politico's China correspondent. More questions to the White House press secretary about how the American public was informed about the discovery of classified documents in President Biden's home and former office, a matter that's now under investigation by a special counsel. We'll get a preview of the president's speech on Sunday at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta on what would have been Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s 94th birthday from the White House Senior Advisor for Public Engagement. First full week of legislative business in the new Congress now complete. We hear from two new members, Republican who compares the challenges the U.S. faces to his time serving on a nuclear submarine and a Democrat just old enough to be elected. And it's time for governors to give their annual state of the state addresses. We'll check in on two with new initiatives, Iowa Republican about school choice and a New York Democrat on mental health reform. Now to the White House. Reuters reporting. U.S. President Joe Biden welcomed Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kushida on Friday and said the United States remains strongly committed to its alliance with Japan while hailing a historic increase in Japanese defense spending. Prime Minister Kushida is in Washington on the last stop of a tour of the G7 industrial powers. And has been seeking to bolster longstanding alliances amid rising concern in Japan about mounting regional security threats from China, North Korea, and Russia. The two leaders met in the White House Oval Office. First President Biden.
2: Well, Mr. Prime Minister, it's great to see you again. Welcome uh welcome such a close friend to the Oval Office again. And uh, you know, uh, we made at a remarkable moment our alliance. I can honestly say more as a student history than a participant that uh, it's been, uh, I don't think there's ever been a time when we are closer to Japan than the United States. Last year in Japan, you said to me, and I quote, we are two nations that share fundamental values. I couldn't agree with you more. We are. These shared democratic values are the source of our strength, source of our alliance, and the source of our uh, being able to deliver for all our people. We're modernizing our military alliance, building on Japan's historic increase in defense spending and new national security strategy. Let me crystal clear, the United States is fully, thoroughly, completely committed to the alliance, and more importantly, to Japan's defense, <clears throat> the defense of Japan, working closely on tech and economic issues, <coughs> including the Indo-Pacific economic framework. And we're stepping up to hold Putin accountable for his unprovoked war in Ukraine. And I want to thank you. Thank you for your strong leadership on this from the very first, the very first conversation we had on this. Today, I'm looking forward to how we can continue advancing our shared goals and values, including at the G7 summit in Japan and the APEC uh, in, uh, in San Francisco later this year. Rather than figuring out how we can work more closely together, a more difficult job would be trying to figure out how and where we disagree. (laughs) You're a real leader and you're a real friend.
1: President Biden in the White House Oval Office with the visiting Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, who took office in October 2021 as leader of the ruling Liberal Democratic Party. This is the first visit to the United States for Prime Minister Kishida. During his remarks in the Oval Office, he spoke about Japan's plan to double its military spending and acquire long-range missiles, its largest military buildup since World War II. You'll hear first from the voice of the interpreter.
3: And Japan and the United States are currently facing the most challenging and complex security environment in recent history. And in order uh, to ensure uh, peace and uh, prosperity in the region and to contribute to that, and also a safeguard of peace and, uh, and security uh, of uh, Japan, uh, in late uh, last year, uh, Japan uh, formulated a new national security strategy.
4: And in so doing, the Japan decided to upon a in a
3: re fundamentally reinforcing our defense capabilities including possessing the counter counterstrike capabilities and in order to ensure that it uh, increase our uh, defense uh, budget. And, uh, and uh, this uh, new uh, policy was set forth uh, by uh, Japan, and I believe uh, that this will inha- be, uh, be beneficial for the deterrence capabilities and response capabilities of the alliance as well. <laughs> And Joe, as you rightly pointed out, I too feel uh, that uh, the role to be played by a Japan and the United States, uh, which, fair, uh, which share uh, the fundamental values uh, such as democracy and the rule of law, uh, the role that we are to play is becoming even greater.
1: With more on the Japanese prime minister's meeting with President Biden at the White House, joining us now on the phone is... Philem Kine, the China correspondent with Politico, thank you so much for being here. You wrote going into today's meeting, when President Joe Biden sits down with the Japanese Prime Minister on Friday, it will mark a major tête-à-tête that could have profound implications for U.S. policy toward a critical part of the globe. What did you mean by that, and what came out of the meeting?
5: Well, I mean, what we've seen today is the climax of really three days of high- diplomacy between the U.S. and Japan, starting on Wednesday with the meetings, the two-plus-two meetings between Defense Secretary uh, Lloyd Austin, Secretary of State Blinken, and their Japanese counterparts. And what we've seen is nothing less than an affirmation of a degree of a close alignment between the U.S. and Japan that we haven't seen in decades. This is the U.S. and Japan coming together over a three-day period of intense diplomacy. And it's not your old man's U.S.-Japan talks. There's no, we're not arguing about tariffs or, or dumping or market access. They're talking about defense spending. They're talking about values, and they're talking about the U.S. and Japan together. And drawing this line against what they see as a threatening region uh, of of growing authoritarianism uh, posed by North Korea, Russia, and China.
3: What does that
1: say about the role that Japan is expected to play in this strategy in that region?
5: Well, the interesting thing is that Japan is taking the initiative to change its posture. So for decades, Japan has been a close military partner of the United States, but they're taking that really stepping that up significantly. And what they're saying is, we recognize now that the neighborhood has changed. They're looking around and they see North Korea developing more nuclear capable ballistic missiles. They're seeing China's increasingly aggressive intent toward Taiwan. And at the same time, they're grappling with China's increasingly aggressive moves toward the disputed islands uh, in the in the South China Sea, what uh, Japan calls the Senkakus, and what China calls the Diaoyutai, and they're looking around and saying we need to do something. And cause, so, Kashida has taken this initiative, and saying, you know what, we can no longer just sit. Comfortably and passively underneath the U.S. umbrella, we need to step up defense spending. Boom! They are more; they're, they're ready to double defense spending, 2.7% of GDP going forward. They are developing and will invest hundreds of million dollars in counter-strike uh, capacity with buying U.S. Tomahawk cruise missiles. Uh, this is a really serious step up in terms of the Japanese recognizing that this section of the 21st century is threatening rocky and they need to be prepared and they need to be close to the u.s
1: we're talking with a politico's china correspondent philem kine japan also a very large economic power what role will they play in in dealing with trying to counter china's economic strength in in alliance with the united states
5: well you know i I mean japan is china's neighbor uh, you know, and China is a major trading partner of the Japanese, and they, they're not going to be able to change that. But what, Jap- what Japan is doing, as is South Korea, you know, you have this trilateral alliance of the U.S., South Korea, and Japan, is that they are seeking to protect their, the industries that are essential for high-tech modern warfare. So we're speaking specifically about semiconductors. Uh, high-technology exports that they want to curb in terms of movement toward China and also uh, a greater emphasis on shoring toward the United States so that these critical industries, so these critical exports are in a distance far away so that if and when, God forbid, there is a conflict in the Indo-Pacific, that the United States... As this manufacturing powerhouse is still able to manufacture both for civilian and military purposes,
1: Prime Minister Kishida also laid a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at Arlington National Cemetery. Not every leader who visits Washington does that. Uh, what did you make of that?
5: I think it's it has pr- it's profound and very moving symbolism when you consider that. The United States and Japan, uh, you know, fought viciously against each other in World War II. It culminated in the uh, atomic attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we've now reached a point where uh, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, whose hometown is Hiroshima, is coming full circle and recognizing the sacrifices of Americans, including those who died fighting Japanese uh, soldiers in World War II, and, and also sort of recognizing and symbolizing his interest in, 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 uh, in disarming it, essentially, his interest in, in, in reducing nuclear proliferation, uh, given that he is from one of the only two cities in the world that have been uh, victims of, nuclear, of atomic bomb attacks.
1: Philem Kine is China correspondent with Politico. His stories at politico.com and on Twitter. It's at Philem Kine, P-H-E-L-I-M-K-I-N-E. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Prosecutors in Japan say they have formally charged with murder the suspect in the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. The suspect was arrested immediately after Shinzo Abe was shot and killed while giving a campaign speech in July. This is Washington Today. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre confirming that President Joe Biden's State of the Union address before a joint session of Congress will be on February 7th. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy inviting the president to speak, writing, "...the new year brings a new Congress and with it a responsibility to work towards an economy that is strong, a nation that is safe, a future that is built on freedom, and a government that is accountable." The American people sent us to Washington to deliver a new direction for the country, to find common ground, and to debate their priorities. In that spirit, it is my solemn obligation to invite you to speak before a joint session of Congress on Tuesday, February 7, 2023, so that you may fulfill your duty under the Constitution to report on the State of the Union. Your remarks will inform our effort to address the priorities of the American people. Here is the question today to the White House Press Secretary.
6: Speaker McCarthy has invited the president to deliver the
5: State of the Union on February 7th. Uh, I think just went out. Uh, is that the date that the president plans to give the State of the Union? Does he accept that invitation? So
7: we have received Speaker uh, McCarthy's kind invitation, and the president has accepted it uh, and looks forward to delivering the State of the Union uh, address on Tuesday, February 17th of 2023. So seven, we have... Seven, seven. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry, guys. On Tuesday, February 7th... 2023, but we truly uh, appreciate the kind invitation by Speaker McCarthy.
1: White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean Pierre with reporters. She later issued a statement. The president is grateful for and accepts Speaker McCarthy's prompt invitation to address the people's representatives in Congress. He looks forward to speaking with Republicans, Democrats, and the country about how we can work together to continue building an economy that works from the bottom up and the middle out. Keep boosting our competitiveness in the world. Keep the American people safe and bring the country together. Many more questions today to the White House press secretary about that discovery of classified documents in a Washington office that President Biden used several years ago when he left the vice presidency and also at his home in Wilmington, Delaware. Matters now being investigated by a special counsel appointed this week by the attorney general. Those questions specifically how the White House disclosed information about the existence of the classified documents to the American people.
8: Does the White House, broadly speaking, have an obligation to share, not just with the National Archives, but with the American people, when the existence of classified information is found in a private location?
7: Again, there is a process in this.
8: But just big picture, not necessarily we, in this instance, well, but is is it the policy of the White House that, that they should share that information, not just with the National Archives, but with the American? People? So,
7: I, I'll say this, Kristen. We have been transparent in the last couple of days. In Remember, there's an ongoing process and we have spoken when it is appropriate. Uh, and we have shared, again, I've been here almost every day, well, not every day, but from Wednesday yesterday and today, taking your questions on this. The White House Council has uh, put out uh, a very extensive multiple uh, statements on this as well. And you all, I know, you all have been talking, many of you here have been talking to my colleague in the White House Council. So, what the the um the actions that we took were right right actions that his team took uh, in de- in in uh, dealing with the Department of Justice and also the archives. But Look, you, I have so I You have, guys have answered questions when the press has broken and the news... Because it's an ongoing process. Because, again, it is an ongoing process. There is a process here. The Department of Justice is independent. We respect that process. But, again, I have taken questions. I can take two two questions through 100 questions. I have answered your questions uh, as uh, almost every day on this issue. And, again, anything else that you may have anything that's related to the review i would refer it to one, the department one of justice last question because i know you have got to
8: move on here but the, the president campaigned on the argument that he would restore confidence we know that he's in the process of deciding whether to officially announce he's running free election does this episode undercut that argument that, that he would restore confidence because here we have in the headlines that he is now under investigation. He's by restored speciality.
7: independence in the Department of Justice. That's what we're doing here. When we're saying we're gonna refer you to the Department of Justice, that is restoring independence as it as it relates to issues like this. And that is important to the president. And it's been consistent. What I am saying about investigations has been consistent for the last two years. You've heard me over and over again, when it comes to a legal issue or a matter like this, uh, we have, always refer to the Department of Justice. So there's nothing here, uh, different here. Uh, we have said we wanted to restore the independence of the Department of Justice. That is what you're seeing. Uh, and again, we, this has been done in a transparent way uh, when it relates to how this was uh, dealt with with the Department of Justice uh, and the archives. The president takes this very, very seriously. Any other questions that you may have about this particular issue, uh, about the review, I would refer you to the Department of Justice. You guys have been in touch with my colleagues at the White House Counsel Office, and I would uh, suggest that you continue to reach out.
1: White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre in the White House briefing room. Biden administration confirming that President Biden's personal attorney, Bob Bauer, will represent him in these matters related to the classified documents. Congressman James Comer, Republican from Kentucky, chair of the Oversight and Accountability Committee sending a letter today to the President's legal team asking for a list of the classified papers recovered so far, and also a list of the names, security clearance levels, and job titles of any aide or attorney assigned by President Biden to search for those government documents. Washington Times writes Republicans have questioned why the National Archives and Records Administration, as well as the Justice Department, which was reviewing the matter, permitted President Biden's lawyers to conduct searches of his properties on their own while sending FBI agents to the home of former President Donald Trump when he was suspected of improperly storing classified documents as well. The Washington Times notes the Biden administration had issued a subpoena for the documents prior to that raid. Congressman Byron Donalds, Republican from Florida, a member of the Oversight Committee, was interviewed today on the Fox News channel.
9: When he had these documents, he was a former vice president of the United States. There is only one person in the country that can declassify information. That is a president. Presidents, when they leave office, they do take documents with them. But when the vice president leaves office or anybody else, you can't take classified information with you. It is clear cut. It's that simple. His, his reasoning about it being in a locked garage means nothing. The other thing I just wonder about the timeline. How do you feel about
2: this, that this being known by November 2nd, the election's November 8th, we don't find out about it until the second week in January. Does that sound, sound like something that should be the, the protocol?
9: Um, It should not be the protocol, especially something this sensitive. And let's be very clear. If Donald Trump was president of the United States and they found out about this, there would have been leaks galore to the press a week before uh, an election. And I don't want to hear people saying, oh, but Department of Justice protocol is that they don't interfere with elections. Well, we are already seeing that there are elements of the federal government who have interfered with elections. So the truth is is that they covered this up. The other timeline that's notable is that Merrick Garland knew full well about this when he named a special counsel into the case involving President Trump. So they have known this was going on. They've only released it at this point because truthfully, Republicans are now taking control of Congress and we are going to investigate. Are you going to? You're on oversight. Is that something that's within uh, with your agenda? Absolutely. I think our our chairman, Jamie Comer, has has stipulated as much we're going to get to the bottom of all this. And most importantly, at the National Archives, because it is very clear that they are choosing when and how they want to flex whatever muscles they have over there. And so we're going to get to the bottom of that as well and see exactly what's going on. Last thing to note. I mean, look, the media was running around saying that they thought Donald Trump had nuclear codes at (laughs) Mar-a-Lago. Well, what's in Joe Biden's garage? There was stuff with the highest clearance, the highest clearance at the Penn-Biden Center. uh, CTCI clearance was at the Penn-Biden Center. What was in those documents?
1: Congressman Byron Donalds, Republican from Florida on Fox News Channel this morning. The letter from the House Oversight Committee Chair James Comer to the president's legal team also contains this. The committee is concerned President Biden stored classified documents at the same location his son Hunter resided while engaging in international business deals with adversaries of the United States. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, expressing support for the appointment of that special counsel in President Biden's classified documents case.
10: Senator Schumer was interviewed this morning on CNN.
8: Do you support the fact that a special counsel is overseeing this matter now? Yes,
10: yeah. I do, and in fact, you know, uh, I was this, when, when they first, uh, the FBI went to Mar-a-Lago and they said, well, what are you going to say about this? I said, it's premature to comment, yeah. and I've said it here, so I've been consistent about it in both cases. You have prosecutors, special prosecutors, I support both of them. Let them do their job. I think that's all that should be said. The politicians shouldn't be buzzing around. Just to be to to be sure about what you said, you believe that the Biden folks are being transparent about this. You think that they're being. I think the Biden folks, as I said, cooperated with the prosecutorial authorities from day one, and Donald Trump didn't. This is our reporting. According to one justice official, said that the White House public statements earlier this week offered an incomplete narrative about the classified documents from Biden's time as vice president, reinforced the need for a special counsel. The misleading statements created the impression that Biden's team had something to hide. That doesn't sound that much different than the former president. Don, there's now a special prosecutor. Let's see what they have to say. We can have all this speculation and comment. Let's see what they have to say, and let's focus on doing things that help the American people. But Senator, I have, to, I, have to get into, I have to say this. Uh, you, you seem much more measured about this than with the Trump documents, because you call for transparency with the Trump documents. You want lawmakers to have access to the documents seized from the former president, uh, his residence in Florida, which it seems like you... The bottom line is I said that night it's premature to comment on what should be done. For and President I stick Trump, by that. Yes, for President Trump. That's exactly so right. I think that That's your statements said. are consistent for I both. I sure do. For both. You bet.
1: Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, on CNN this morning. New York Times has a story. Former President Donald J. Trump's family real estate business was ordered on Friday to pay a $1.6 million criminal penalty for its conviction on tax fraud and other charges. A stinging rebuke and the maximum possible punishment. The sentence, handed down by a judge in state Supreme Court in Manhattan, caps a lengthy legal ordeal for Mr. Trump's company, the Trump Organization, which was convicted in December of doling out off-the-books perks to some of its top executives. On Wall Street, the Dow up 112, NASDAQ up 78, S&P up 15. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying in a letter to Congress concerning the federal debt ceiling, The department will begin taking emergency steps, known as extraordinary measures, starting January 19th to prevent a U.S. default when the current cap of $31.4 trillion is reached. She estimates those steps will prevent default until at least early June. Republicans have been calling for federal spending cuts to accompany any raising of the debt ceiling. It's something that Democrats, including President Biden, have rejected.
0: That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Washington Today, which
1: airs on C-SPAN Radio Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. and 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can also get it as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. A preview today of President Biden's trip on Sunday to Atlanta, where he will speak at the Ebenezer Baptist Church on what would have been the late Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s 94th birthday. Monday is the King Day federal holiday. This year is the 40th anniversary of the law that created that holiday. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporting this week, it will be President Biden's first trip to Georgia since January 2022 and an opportunity for him to appear alongside Senator Raphael Warnock, who was recently sworn in for his first full six-year term. Senator Warnock is Ebenezer's head pastor. Martin Luther King Jr. served as the church's co-pastor alongside his father from 1960 until he was assassinated in 1968. At the White House, Keisha Lance Bottoms, Senior Advisor for Public Engagement.
4: The president is traveling to Atlanta. This is at the invitation of Reverend Warnock, and the president will deliver a sermon at Ebenezer Church, which, of course, was Dr. King's church. Also, Congressman John Lewis's church. Uh, The president spoke with Senator Warnock last night. Senator Warnock has been the pastor since 2005 at Ebenezer. They had a wonderful conversation about the significance of this historic event, including the fact that the president is the first sitting president Uh, to speak at a Sunday service at Ebenezer in its history. Uh, This would have been Dr. King's 94th birthday. As we know, this is an inflection point in history, and the president will deliver remarks reflecting on Dr. King's life and legacy, uh, and the way that we can go forward together. Following his trip to Atlanta on Sunday, he will join Reverend Al Sharpton on Monday at the National Action Network, which Monday, of course, is the day, the official celebration day of the kink holiday. The president will deliver the keynote speech there.
1: Keisha Lance Bottoms, senior advisor to the president for public engagement in the White House briefing room. C-SPAN radio and television will be covering live on Monday at 1045 a.m. Eastern the annual National Action Network, Martin Luther King Day Breakfast. This first week for the U.S. House of Representatives under the new Republican majority saw several pieces of legislation passed, mostly along party lines. One that created investigative committee on the, quote, weaponization of the federal government, another committee on U.S.-China competition. There were also bills on abortion and energy policy. And we got to hear from some of the 74 new members There are 40 Republicans and 34 Democrats. Here are two of them. Brandon Williams, Republican from New York, and Martin Frost, Democrat from Florida. First, Congressman Williams on the House floor on
11: Wednesday. Speaker, I rise to offer perspective on the purpose and mission of this 118th Congress. The gentleman is recognized for five minutes. I'm honored to speak here on the House floor for the first time. I'm the first nuclear submarine veteran to serve in the United States House of Representatives in the last 50 years, and only the second in our nation's history. One particular submarine patrol we pulled into Pearl Harbor to take World War II veterans out to sea with us for the day. By naval tradition, we stood at attention and saluted the USS Arizona as we passed by. One part of the experience we shared with these veterans was to demonstrate the tremendous pressure of the ocean. In the control room with the periscopes, we would tie a string from one side of the hole to the other, about the width of this rostrum behind me. Our submarine's hole is made of high strength steel to keep the water out and the crew safe. On the surface, this string would be taut like a guitar string and would sit about a foot off the deck. But as we submerged our boat, the pressure of the sea would compress the hull and that string would begin to droop. And by the time we reached many hundreds of feet below the ocean, that string would lay flat on the deck, the incredible pressure of the ocean visible for everyone to see. Now, like that submarine that I served on, America is under tremendous pressure. And like that string sitting on the deck, we can all see it. It's inflation, it's the border, it's the lawlessness of our federal agencies, and it's clear that our nation is in trouble. The failed policies of the current administration are only taking us deeper and deeper. And now with a Republican majority led by Speaker McCarthy, we have the leadership for this critical moment in time. In 1963, the nuclear submarine, the USS Thresher, was conducting engineering trials off of Cape Cod when they encountered an engineering problem. The crew was able to bring the boat to within 100 feet of the surface, but they lost their battle as the submarine descended below what's called the crush depth. All hands were lost. Americans have voted for a Republican majority in this House to reverse the policies of the current administration and to start to relieve the pressure that is all around us. The commitment to America is exactly that plan for exactly that purpose to unite this chamber and to lead America back to safer waters. You know, a typical submarine crew would be about a quarter of the number of seats in this chamber. So imagine for a moment that that many people together, in a steel tube, hundreds of feet below the ocean, for months at a time. Now, I've spent 500 days at sea, and I can tell you that after so many days, not everyone on the boat's gonna like each other. But you know, the thing about submarines is that there's no easy way off. No matter what we think of each other, at the end of the journey, we arrive in the same place together. So let's talk about where we want to end up. For starters, when something is broken on the submarine, you don't scuttle the boat with the crew aboard. You keep fighting to fix what's broken, triaging critical systems, and getting the boat to a safe depth. And that's exactly what we witnessed last week as we chose Speaker McCarthy. He has been chosen to restore faith in this chamber and to unite our party. Freedom is a fragile thing, and we saw that. Under Democrats' one-party rule, a strong Republican conference is key to securing a better future for our children, our grandchildren, and for generations to come. Mr. Speaker, I yield back. Brandon
1: Williams, Republican from New York, new member of Congress, on the House floor on Wednesday. The Auburn Citizen newspaper has an article on the first two bills the congressman has co-sponsored two proposed constitutional amendments, one to establish congressional term limits and the other to set permanently the number of Supreme Court justices at nine. Another freshman House member, Democrat Maxwell Frost of Florida, taking part in a discussion Tuesday on the role of young voters in the 2022 midterm elections. Congressman Frost is 25 years old, the bare minimum under the Constitution to be elected. He was a community organizer, and activist, described in news reports as the first of Generation Z to be elected to Congress. He was interviewed by Naveen Nayak, president and executive director of CAP, the Center for American Progress Action Fund.
10: We did see one of the most productive Congresses in a generation, Uh, you know, especially on issues that young people not only care about and support, but that they've been agitating for action on. Largest investment ever in climate change, cancellation of up to ten thousand dollars in student debt,
1: first time doing anything about gun violence in this country in, in 30 years. I'm both curious how much in your own race this this played a factor, and and whether you think you know a lot of the media coverage, a lot of the uh, a lot of the communication did
10: focus, understandably, on the threats that were very visceral as well. Is there more room even moving forward to be touting sort of? reminding people of what actually has gotten accomplished, um, over the last couple of years.
6: Yeah, no, I, I, I think we have to, right. I mean, we're coming into a Congress where I'm like, yesterday was sitting down with my team was looking at all the things I'm voting on this week. And, you know, I just got really sad. Uh, you know, um, <clears throat> this is a Congress that's going to be, uh, passing a lot of, resolution and bills to virtue signal, right? I mean, we have a Republican majority that wants to fight to take away the right to choose and the right to bodily autonomy. They want to fight to, um, at the expense of marginalized communities, bring up other communities. Um, And so for me, it's important that we continue to get back to what the last two years have been. And we have to be honest, it wasn't everything we wanted. We know this, right? We understand this, but I think showing people that government can work for them is part of what's gonna help with voter turnout. There's no big secret why 50% of this country doesn't vote, right? It's because people for generations have been lied to by politicians who say, vote for me and this will happen. That's just not how our system works. And I think it's important that we have leaders who don't see themselves as just working for movements or for people, but working with people and see themselves as part of a greater whole, right? And that's the way I see myself. A lot of that comes from the fact that I've been an organizer and come from the movement world. That's the way I see myself. That's the way I see my colleagues. We're working in this institution to fight for a better world, to pass the bills we want. But we all know that to pass the bills you want, it's a math problem. And to fix that math problem, we've got to get people to go out and vote and vote a lot of these people out and switch it, right? You've got to change the math. And so I think all of this comes down to showing people that government can work for them. And I think touting the wins of the last two years is an incredibly important part of that, especially because in the, for these next two years, we're not going to see any bills like that get passed. I don't say this to be pessimistic. I say this to be realistic. Because I think setting expectations is part of the reason we're in the problem we're in now with people not going out to vote. Because the expectations have been here and people get this and they feel like my vote doesn't matter. And I don't blame them and I'm not gonna shame them for feeling that way. All we can do is point forward, look at what we've done and and, and talk about this, this broader movement, the fact that we need everybody at the table. We know voting isn't gonna save us all. It's one tool in our toolbox. But we, we need to use
1: it. Congressman Maxwell Frost, Democrat from Florida at the Center for American Progress on Tuesday. C-SPAN cameras covered this event on the impact of young voters in the 2022 midterm elections. You can find the full video at CSPAN.org. As the new year begins, C-SPAN also airing governor's annual state of the state addresses. This week, there were two from governors who faced tough election races in November and one, Republican Kim Reynolds of Iowa winning a second term and Democrat Kathy Hochul of New York winning a full term. She became governor in 2021 following the resignation of the previous governor. First, we go to Iowa, the annual speech known as the condition of the state. Des Moines Register has an article that begins, after two years of setbacks, Governor Kim Reynolds proposed a more ambitious and far-reaching school choice plan Tuesday, calling on the legislature to make available to every Iowa student a taxpayer-funded scholarship that their families can use to pay for private
12: school. Tonight, I'm announcing a comprehensive education reform package that will focus on improving education for all children. It starts by making sure that every family can make the choice that this teacher and mother made to send their child to the school that best fits their needs. We have incredible public schools filled with amazing and dedicated teachers. My daughter is one of them. But every child is an individual who deserves an education tailored to their unique needs. And parents are in the best position to identify the right environment. You know, some families may want an education that conforms to their faith and moral convictions. Some kids have ambitions and abilities that require a unique educational setting Others may experience bullying or have special needs. Regardless of the reason, every parent should have a choice of where to send their child. And that should not be limited to families who can afford it. My school choice bill will create create education savings accounts for families who choose to send their child to a private school. The state will contribute $7,598 that account, which is the amount of funding the state provides for each child who attends a public school. For students currently attending a private school, the plan will be phased in, focusing first on the families with the lowest income levels, and in three years, every family will have a choice in education, and no child will be limited by income or zip code.
1: Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, Republican, delivering her condition of the state speech in Des Moines on Tuesday. New York Times reporting from Albany, New York, making crime and affordability the cornerstones of her state of the state address. Governor Kathy Hochul on Tuesday sought to offer a roadmap to address the vexing and deep rooted problems that are facing most metropolitan areas across the country and are acutely felt in New York City. Many of her plans seem squarely aimed at helping New York City navigate its pandemic-era recovery, as Mayor Eric Adams wrestles with residents' fears over street and subway crime, as well as a visible increase in New Yorkers who are homeless and mentally ill. The New York Times article continues, indeed, Ms. Hochul saved some of her loftiest rhetoric to describe her proposal to overhaul the state's approach to mental health, an issue championed by Mr. Adams promising a monumental shift to make sure no one falls through the cracks. Here's part of that speech from Governor Hochul.
8: We have underinvested in mental health care for so long and allowed the situation to become so dire that it also has become a public safety crisis as well. New Yorkers are anxious on the subways and in our streets when they see individuals who, who need help, people unable to take care of themselves properly, people could cause harm to themselves or other. Not all, just some, a few But those people are also at risk of being victimized themselves. So I'm declaring the era of ignoring the needs of these individuals is over. Because because our success as government leaders is measured by our ability to lift up and support all of our constituents. So today marks a reversal in state, the state's approach to mental health care. And this is a monumental shift to make sure that no one else falls to the cracks. This will be the most significant change since the deinstitutionation institutionation area of the 1970s. And I'm proud to announce, to accomplish this goal, we are prepared to invest $1 billion, making critical policy changes, to fully meet the mental health needs of our people. It's about time. Let's get it done. We can do this together. Let's get it done. Our people need this. Our residents are calling on us to do this. Let's get it done.
1: New York Governor Kathy Hochul, Democrat, giving her State of the State address on Tuesday in Albany, New York. Governor Hochul won the November election for governor against former Congressman Lee Zeldin, Republican of New York who also on Tuesday wrote an opinion piece for the New York Post, giving a response to the State of the State address. He writes, The Empire State is in dire need of a full restoration to its former glory, reversing outward migration, improving the quality of education in schools, promoting upward economic mobility, securing our streets and subways, and much more. Unfortunately, one-party democratic rule in Albany has resulted in a lack of balance and common sense that has our state charging off a cliff. You can read some of his proposals for reform in that article at nypost.com. Thanks for listening to Washington today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get the latest stories in Washington sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night and weekend.